Uh, This morning, I have the opportunity to jump back with you into a series working through 2 Timothy. And so our text for this morning is going to be 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18, uh, which as we've talked about suffering multiple times this morning, it seems this is a very fitting passage to spend time looking at, as that's the, the main focus here in this passage. But over the past month or so, uh, as I've been driving, like many of you, I usually will listen to music or perhaps a podcast. But recently I've been using that time to listen to a biography about Winston Churchill. And it's just the, the most massive biography I could ever imagine. It's, you know, listening to it is 32 hours long, and that's just volume one of three. And it covers all the way from his birth through his death. And what I've been realizing as you go through this book is that he was not a very likable man. As you go through this book, you realize, especially in his early years as well as his later years, he was a man who thought and spoke very highly of himself. And though he was abrasive in nature, yes, he was also a man of strong conviction. And I actually think he may have lived one of the most interesting lives ever. Uh, And my wife can attest that I think that because I won't stop talking about it. But consider that by the age of 25, it's possible he did more in those years than most men do in their entire lives. He had already run at that age for political office, though he lost the first time. By his own account, he was an excellent polo player. But then he had also had an entire military career in which he had been a prisoner of war and then escaped captivity by pretending to be a guard and just leaving. But most of us know him for his role in World War II. In 1940, if you'll think back with me, Britain was on the brink of destruction as the Axis powers were pressing in against them. And it's because of the poor management of the country and poor response to the military action that the current Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, was called by the opposing Labour Party to step down as Prime Minister. And at that point, 66-year-old Winston Churchill was called upon to take his place. Now, upon his entry into office, Churchill faced opposition on every single side, whether it be from inside his own cabinet or from King George VI. Everybody in his own country was in opposition to him. And all of those around him were charging him over and over to speak to Italy's Benito Mussolini and asking, ask him, Please broker for us a peace deal with Germany so we won't be destroyed. But the strong conviction of Winston Churchill to stand against the blatant evil of Adolf Hitler would not be moved, and he refused to enter into peace negotiations. Even though he sat there in his first few weeks as prime minister, knowing that that Britain may face destruction, the only thing he would say to parliament was that I have nothing to offer to you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. 
And it was his strong conviction to serve the people of Britain and to stand against such blatant evil that allowed him to remain faithful to the task set before him, even though it felt like much of the world was against him. Though trials faced him, he held fast. And because of that, not only did Britain weather that storm, but would eventually go on with the allies to be victorious. He didn't shirk his responsibilities when they became inconvenient, when they became difficult or even discouraging. But he faced them head on and he remained faithful. This is the same call that the Apostle Paul presents to Timothy and by extension, I should say, every believer If you would remember with me just a a few weeks ago, our first message in Second Timothy, we we know that Paul is imprisoned. He's squirreled away somewhere in a dark dungeon, a hole in the ground. And it's from that jail cell that he charged Timothy to kindle afresh the gifts that the Lord had given to him. And Timothy was called to do so. Why? Because God didn't give him a spirit of timidity, a spirit of cowardice but one of power, one of love, and one of self-discipline. And what we're going to see this morning is a reminder from Paul that that foundational truth that was mentioned in verses 1 through 7, if it becomes the foundation of Timothy's life, it will prepare him for all of these charges that Paul is to now set before young Timothy. Now, as the text continues, what we will see is that Timothy has indeed been firmly planted in this foundational truth. And it's because of this, we see that Paul, that imprisoned apostle, is going to call Timothy to great suffering. Friends, this morning, I want to try to persuade you. I want to try and persuade you that this passage we're about to read needs to be one that every single believer is intimately familiar with. Now, for most of American history, we have enjoyed freedoms that many could not imagine. Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. These are freedoms that were not present in the days of Paul and Timothy. Remember, once again, the time in which this letter is taking place. The amount of persecution that was being felt by every single man, every single woman who would dare to call themselves a genuine follower of Christ. Though we may not be experiencing that same type of overt persecution and suffering every day, I I will say I believe many of those rights that we have enjoyed may not be around much longer. Friends, persecution and suffering aren't just coming. They are already here. Whether it's bakers whose shops are vandalized because they won't bake a cake promoting that which goes against their Christian values. Whether it be a graphic designer who is sued because they refuse to work on a project that they deem to be immoral. Or more recently, maybe it's parents who are now being threatened with the government removing children from their home 
because they refuse to affirm their young child's so-called sexual identity. Or maybe it's pastors who, because they refuse to forsake the meeting of saints in person, they're arrested. Persecution and suffering are here. And it seems that as time continues, should the Lord will it, that these may just increase. We, like Timothy, need this passage because we need to understand how do we conduct ourselves in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. When these abound, how is the genuine follower to remain on course? How are we to be faithful? How are we to respond? This morning, Paul presents us with four principles which are meant to spur us on towards faithfulness in the face of suffering. First, what we're going to see is a mandate of suffering. Second, a motivation for suffering. Third, a mission in suffering. And fourth, the materiality of suffering. If you would take your copy of God's word, let's read together. Second Timothy chapter one, verses eight through 18. Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Hold to the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of this, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom were Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy to the house of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. First, in in verse 8 this morning, what we are going to see is that Paul presents Timothy with a mandate of suffering. The next section in Paul's second letter to Timothy begins with a therefore. And now if you are an advanced Bible scholar, you may have heard that phrase. If there's a therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for? Well, This, therefore, is there to link us back to verse 7, the conclusion of our previous message in 2 Timothy. 
Because it's there that Paul gives Timothy instruction about how the Holy Spirit works in and through the life of the genuine believer, giving them that spirit, not of timidity, but of love, of power, and of self-discipline. So then, if that is true, if that is the spirit that God has given to the genuine believer, then they should boldly accept what Paul is about to set forth. In verse 8, Paul is going to present Timothy with two clear imperatives, two clear commands. The first imperative is going to be seen in the negative, where he says, do not be ashamed of either the witness of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. It's here that Paul shares with Timothy the manner in which he is to suffer. Timothy is to be absolutely, completely unashamed of having association with the witness of the Lord, which is the gospel, and me, his prisoner, referring to Paul. Now, let's be clear. To be ashamed, to have a a fear or reluctance, fearing humiliation, would be a very natural tendency for man to experience given the circumstances. In fact, aren't we going to see that that is the natural tendency of man later on when Paul addresses all who have abandoned him? Think with me for a second. If we look at this from merely a human perspective, you can make an argument that the gospel and Paul are absolutely something that you could be tempted to be ashamed of. The whole of the Christian faith was spread mainly by the mouths of not scholars and lawyers, but fishermen, tax collectors, and undesirables. The whole of the Christian faith was based upon this man who many called a prophet, and many think he failed because he was rejected by his own people and killed by the governing authorities. And the Christian faith was spread by the mouth of those undesirables. And even 1 Corinthians one twenty three, which tells us this, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. The very words of those fishermen, the tax collector, they were foolishness to the natural ear that would hear them. And everything they were teaching was based on norms that were contrary to the culture at the time. Those are just the potential reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. What about Paul? I mean, Timothy could have been ashamed by Paul. Think about how 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27 describes Paul. It tells us that he was constantly facing opposition. And now we know he's imprisoned yet again. And he's waiting to be killed. In the eyes of the natural man, this is a failure of failures. But by the grace of God... By the power of the Holy Spirit, Timothy is not ashamed of him. Rather, what we see in this second indicative is that Timothy is to join with Paul in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. 
Not only has Timothy not given into this temptation of being ashamed of the gospel or of Paul, but now he's taking another step. He's being invited to suffer alongside Paul. And actually, the words of Paul here aren't just a mere invitation. When we look here at this active imperative of sum kakopatheo, it's this call of join with me in suffering, join with, with this, which is not just my greatest desire in life, but this is the purpose of our life. As it speaks of in Philippians 3.10, where, where believers are said, specifically Paul, to, to join in the fellowship of his sufferings. But friends, neither of them can do this in their own strength. We're reminded that this is done according to the power of God. That the very power which Timothy was reminded of in verse 7 is what allows them to do this now. In speaking on this call of unashamed suffering, John Kitchen states, The measure of endurance is never our self-resolve, but the Spirit of God dwelling in us. The suffering of the believer, this isn't just an inconvenient possibility that we have to be aware of. This is a reality that we all need to understand and embrace. Think about the words of Christ in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. He speaks about this very clearly, saying, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you because it loves its own. But you are not of the world, for I chose you out of the world. What we need to remember is that the one who proclaims Christ both as their Savior and as their Lord has set themselves directly in opposition to the world in which they now live. And because of that, they will be attacked by the world in which they now live. So what Paul shares with us here is that we, like Timothy, must in an unashamed manner actively participate in this suffering for the sake of the gospel, but never to do it in our own strength, in our own power, or in our own might. Rather, when we face and join in that suffering, we do so being fully equipped by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. This, dear brothers and sisters, is a mandate of suffering. Second, in Verses 9 through 12, we will see a motivation for suffering. Now, I I must say, as I was looking at this passage specifically, verses 9 through 12, it was hard to limit this down to a motivation for suffering because Paul is just about to list no less than six different ways in which we can be motivated to suffer. But what we're going to see is that what all six of these points have in common is is that they are all based in the hope that we have because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. In his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. In fact, these four verses you're going to see is one of the clearest explanations in the pastoral epistles of soteriology or the study of salvation. 
In fact, if you wanted to look at these verses as something even simpler, you could say these verses here are one of the clearest, most profound explanations of the gospel that we get in the pastoral epistles. Now, we must remember this isn't here because Timothy doesn't know what the gospel is. Rather, this is here because, as I stated, this portion of the text is the the why, the motivation behind the suffering which Timothy and, by extension, all believers are called to. And I'll say this motivation can be broken down into two major categories. First, we're going to look at kind of the, the planned and realized work of the gospel. And then second, we're going to look at the assurance that the genuine believer has. First there, as we, as we look at this summary of the gospel, at this motivation for suffering, we're going to see the planned work of salvation. Paul begins this by reminding us of what we would call the effectual call. This is the call of saving faith in Christ extended to all the elect, all those who would believe. And Paul very clearly reminds us here that we have no bearing upon our salvation. He makes that explicitly clear. This salvation is not something that we can strive hard to achieve. Friends, it's something that we simply are able to receive. The only way that salvation could take place is if God is behind it. And this text makes it clear that God is behind it. Because remember, Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we were dead in our sins. And there's one thing that dead people do other than decompose, and that is stay dead. They can't do anything. We were dead. We were enslaved to sins. We were in love with sins. There's nothing that we could have ever done to seek after the Lord or do anything that was pleasing to him. It is only because of his work that we could ever turn to him. Here the text says from all eternity, literally before times eternal, prior to creation itself, before we were knit together in our mother's wombs, before we were birthed and before our first cry, God chose us. He did that. And Paul makes it very clear, clear as day. This is something that God's plan. And in verse 10, that this planning has now been realized and accomplished through the coming of Jesus. This is not just something that was planned in eternity past, but it is it has come to pass. Verse 10 moves from that planned work of God from eternity past to the work of Christ, saying, but now has been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here, Paul focuses on the fact of what God did, what what he planned before the foundation of the earth. He has now made abundantly clear through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see that because Christ came to earth as truly God and truly man, because 
He lived a life where he was tempted in every single way that we were yet without sin because he bore the wrath of God on the cross, because he died and rose again on the third day, because he is now ascended and is at the right hand of the Father interceding upon our behalf. It's because of this work, death has been abolished. It is no more. Now here it's not saying death is literally no more. We know that that is still a physical reality that we have to come to terms with. But he's speaking to the fact that the power of death, it's been broken completely and totally. Spiritual death no longer holds power over the genuine believer. Rather, life and immortality have been brought to light. Here speaking of the fact that there is is spiritual life that goes on for eternity and then there will be a physical resurrection that lasts for eternity. And this is something that used to be hidden from our view, but now it has been made crystal clear, perfectly understandable in the life of Christ. Finally, here, after focusing upon both the planned and realized work of salvation, Paul continues motivating Timothy in verse 12 by speaking to him of something so sweet. And that's the assurance that he himself, and I'll say every believer, can have. Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And he uses these words for this reason, once again pointing us, Back to a previous statement. This time Paul is pointing back just a few uh, few statements telling us that, yes, what causes him to suffer is going to be, of course, his, his office as apostle, as a teacher, as a prophet. Yes, those all call him to suffer. But there's something even more, and that is his total, complete, wholehearted submission to every single aspect of the gospel. Paul is willing to suffer because he's confident in the gospel. He's confident in what God has accomplished through his predestination. He is confident in what, is, what God has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's confident that his, Paul's, striving will not be in vain. Because he knows that he, meaning God, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, the exact meaning of that very phrase there can often be debated by many theologians. And in fact, if you're reading out of the ESV, you may have a a different statement there in the text. Yours may read more closely to say that Paul is able to guard what has been entrusted to him until that day. Therefore, being a reference to Paul holding fast to the truth of the gospel However, if we keep in mind right here the the context and the immediately surrounding verses, I don't think that that is the, the natural conclusion we come to. Rather, what seems plain is that that Paul is talking about what we would call the preservation of the saints. As Paul is speaking so explicitly to Timothy about our motivation in suffering, remember, he's talked about what God has predestined from eternity past. 
He's talked about what has been accomplished through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he speaks of that which will be a reality someday or will be realized someday. Paul knew that God would protect him and keep him until the very end, until that day, having confidence in what Jesus speaks of in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, where we're reminded by Jesus himself that what the Father has given to the Son, he will not lose. All those whom the Father has given to the Son, they will not escape his grasp. He will hold them. He will hold them fast. Paul trusted God, and he knew that he alone had the power to provide faith and a completed salvation, which was to be revealed to us on that day. And on that day here being a reference to that day when when Timothy, when Paul, when every single believer will stand before the Lord and be judged, not for righteousness, praise God for that, but for faithfulness. He knows that God will keep him. Now, in 1940, thinking back to that, as as Neville Chamberlain stepped down from his role as prime minister in Britain, it actually was a very curious thing that Winston Churchill would be chosen to take his place. At that time, he had a pretty mundane political career, and some actually thought it to be very embarrassing. But perhaps one of the largest reasons why Churchill was chosen to take the place of Neville Chamberlain was because Churchill had been warning since 1930 about the mounting power of Germany and the madman Adolf Hitler. And he was doing that when much of the world was still in disbelief. He was a man that the people could follow because he had a proven track record of opposing evil. He had a track record of being faithful as can be in this area. And as a result, it was determined that he was the man for the job. His track record of faithfulness showed him to be a man that could be trusted and could be followed in these times of war. In a similar, but, a, but at the same time, a much greater sense Friends, God has a tremendous, tried and true track record of faithfulness. Paul wants us to see and understand and believe that everything taking place is according to God's divine, sovereign will. This is all part of God's plan, and it's because of his track record of faithfulness that we can trust him. We can trust him. This is what motivates us to live for and to suffer for him now and all the days of the rest of our lives. So, so far today, we've seen a mandate for suffering, a motivation for suffering. And third, we see a mission in suffering in verses 13 through 14. Now, if you're following along in the text, as Paul's flow of thought continues, he moves from what ought to be Timothy's motivation now to some very clear instructions with regard to what he must be doing as he joins in 
with this unashamed suffering. And so verses 13 through 14, again, Paul gives Timothy, just like in verse 8, two imperatives, two commands that he must follow. And by extension, that every believer must hold to. In verse 13, we're told that he, Timothy, must hold the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Standard here being the word hupotuposis, which refers to guidelines, standards for a finished work. And for the Christian, this standard being spoken of is, is very clearly the revelation and word of God. Simply put here, Timothy is told that he must hold to, he must relentlessly and boldly keep to the one true gospel. He has to keep that always in his heart and always upon his lips. That must be the case for young Timothy. But in thinking about this, Pastor John MacArthur has a a phenomenal quote where he says, Courage in Christian ministry, as well as in Christian living in general, is not possible apart from strong biblical convictions. But... These strong convictions are to be held and taught in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The genuine believer is called with all of their being to protect and to hold to the gospel. Yes, but there is also a charge in the way in which they deliver that message to others. They must always proclaim the truth in love at all times, never forsaking one for the other. The genuine believer cannot be bombastic or harsh or careless, but he has to hold to and proclaim the gospel with grace in his heart and with seasoned speech. Timothy must and we must always present that truth in love. We must hold fast to the truth, proclaim the truth, but do so in such a way that we are being winsome and honoring to the others and most importantly to the Lord. We must have a character, a heart of compassion and love with which to win the unbeliever and to help grow the immature. And the second imperative here that Paul presents Timothy with is, is going to be found in verse 14. Where Paul tells Timothy he is to guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Or simply put, many translations have this as guard the good deposit. With the first imperative in verse 13, it seems Paul's focus was on on the way in which to guard and proclaim. But now in verse 14, the, the focus is upon the totality with which Timothy must hold to that sound, drop, sound doctrine. With his second imperative, Paul seems focused upon that for certain. The word guard here, as utilized by Paul, it's meant to actually convey a sense of urgency to Timothy. It's supposed to be, Timothy, you need to understand this is work you need to begin and hold fast to immediately and forever. Immediately, Timothy is to to care for that deposit 
which God has faithfully entrusted to Timothy for safekeeping. But what is that good deposit that's been entrusted to the very care of Timothy? Well, based off of our context here, especially the previous verse, we understand that this is the gospel and the whole of its teaching. That is that good deposit which Timothy is to guard with his life. Timothy is told by the apostle he has to now guard the gospel, but he must not strive to do so in his own strength. He must do this as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. This here, which Paul is calling Timothy to do, is something that Paul himself has been showing his entire converted life to all who would but look upon the example of his life. Paul never strayed from guarding or proclaiming that good deposit. That is clear. But he also never strayed from pairing the truth with love. And as I mentioned, never forsaking one for the other. And perhaps one of my favorite examples where this is seen is in in Galatians chapter 4. Because we see Paul recounts the dear relationship that he has with the members of the Galatian church. He reminds them of the manner in which they came to know one another. He speaks about the fact that they cared for him when he was ill. They developed a deep, deep love for one another. And Paul is now concerned for the Galatians. Because he sees that many there are turning away from the one true gospel. And so Paul graciously, but very boldly, he proclaims the truth to the Galatians. And even as Galatians 4.16 tells us, he, he did so knowing full well that if he proclaimed the truth to the Galatians, he may lose his relationship with them forever. Asking them, have I now become your enemy as I proclaimed you the truth? What Paul has called Timothy, what Paul has called us to do, it's not something that he himself has not also done and did not do for the totality of his converted days. So fear of rejection stared him straight in the face. With those he loved so dearly, he didn't waver. Not for a second. Are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to proclaim the truth and love to those around us, even if they may abandon us? Are we willing? This here is our mission in suffering. Fourth and finally, I want to turn our attention to the materiality of suffering in verses 15 through 18. And when I say that 15 through 18 show us the materiality of suffering, I'm simply saying that 15 through 18, Paul puts on display that this is a reality. And Paul is, is providing Timothy with a great illustration of all the points he has just made. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, believe me, suffering for the sake of the gospel, it is very real. If you don't believe me based off of what I've gone through in the past, the fact that I'm in the jail, just keep in mind the fact that every single person in Asia has abandoned me. They were ashamed of the gospel. They were ashamed of me and they're gone. Even Phygelus and Hermogenes, those who are working alongside with me, gone. And here I am alone 
in a dungeon, perhaps chained to a guard, and I've been abandoned. And there was only one who stuck by my side. We see in that that dungeon, Paul is very able to write to Timothy of the reality of suffering. Yet in the midst of this hardship, one of the things that is so beautiful, Paul, as he reflects on the fact that he's been deserted, that he's alone, he finds time to give thanks. He finds time to give thanks, praising and praying for Onesephorus. He's praying for this, this man who has been a refreshment, like a, a cold drink of water on a hot Idaho day. This has been a refreshing man, one who when he got to Rome, he couldn't find Paul right away. He searched for him high and low until he found him and came to minister to him. And so Paul finds time in the midst of the suffering to rejoice. He rejoices praying that on that day, which we've spoken of earlier, on that day when Onesephorus stands before the Lord, Paul is praying that as he's judged for faithfulness, that God would grant him great mercy and remember how effective he was for the work of the gospel, how helpful he was to the Apostle Paul in providing him with encouragement and refreshment. In the face of such despair, in the face of such desertion, how much sweeter must the faithfulness of that one man have been? How refreshing that would be. The suffering of Paul mentioned here in 2 Timothy, I got to say, is a very brief sampling. Consider from Paul's own writing in 2 Corinthians what he went through. Just listen to this list for a moment. Paul, beaten times without number. Paul, often in danger of death. Five times receiving 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Once stoned. Three times shipwrecked, often in danger from rivers, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, among false brethren, laboring in hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and often without food and stuck out in the cold. If we had to experience one of those things, we may consider it the hardest Suffering we've ever considered or had to deal with in our lives, and it may shake our faith to its very core. But how did Paul view this suffering? Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Even the worst of his sufferings were endured well and considered, as Romans 8.18 says, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need to have the same view of suffering as Paul. Though Paul experienced hardships far greater than many of us could ever imagine, he counted it all as joy. Even though all of Asia had left his side, he still found reason to rejoice in his brother Onesephorus, that one who had been faithful to the gospel 
and to him. And Paul was able to do this because he had an eternal perspective. He was not stuck thinking of what was happening here and now. His eyes were set on yet what was still to come. So forth, we've seen the materiality of suffering. This morning, the Apostle Paul has clearly presented Timothy and us with four principles that are meant to spur us on, to encourage us to faithfulness in the midst of suffering as we strive to suffer for the gospel without shame. We saw first that mandate of suffering. Second, the motivation for suffering. Third, the mission in suffering. And fourth, the materiality of suffering. And while we've seen these principles, I fear that that we can read a passage in this and we can actually be tempted to become anxious as we become convinced of the fact that suffering is going to be a reality in our lives. But I just want to consider you to sit back and listen to those sweet words of Charles Spurgeon for a moment, where, where in speaking about this, he says, a man shall carry a bucket of water on his head and be very tired with the burden. But the same man when he dives into the sea, shall have a thousand buckets on his head without perceiving their weight because he's in the element and it entirely surrounds him. The duties of holiness are very irksome to men who are not in the element of grace. Then they bear ten times more and feel no weight, but are refreshed thereby with joy unthinkable. Friends, today the call has been to suffer. We see from that mandate of suffering that that this is what the believer is called to. This is the reality, not just a possibility. But we know that that if we, we are in this world, if we're living for the Lord, we're going to be attacked because we're in direct opposition to those that are around us. We see from the motivation for suffering that we need to suffer well. We have to hold fast to the accomplished work of Christ, knowing that he has prede- what he has predestined in eternity past, what he has accomplished through his son and his birth, life, death, and resurrection, and what he will soon one day accomplish as we look forward to eternity. And we know, friends, as Paul says, God will guard us to that day. We've seen in the mission of suffering that even as we face suffering, as we face persecution, we can never waver in holding fast to the truth. But with that truth, we must proclaim it in truth and in love. And as we saw in the materiality of suffering, we saw that suffering once again is a reality that the believer must face. We have to be willing to take on that suffering holding to the one true gospel, knowing that it may leave us abandoned. But also knowing that in times of trial, there's still great joy to be found, whether in the readily seen faithfulness of other believers or in the fact that we have our eyes set on eternity and we know what God will one day accomplish. Everything that I've just stated up to this point It can seem burdensome. I understand that. It can seem overwhelming. Like that bucket of water that is placed upon your head that you try and carry in your own strength. 
Friends, may I remind you today that if you try and do any of what I have described to you in your own power, you will be overwhelmed. So may I encourage you first, dive deeply into the waters of the grace of our Lord and Savior. Because as you do that, as you entrust yourself, as you wholly submit yourself completely to him, the duties of holiness are not so irksome. But they are a joy because for the first time in your life, you are living the way that God has designed you to live.